And you get to see what theater can be. And you get to trust that what we are doing is we're telling good stories, right? We're telling, and everybody, everybody loves a good story. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back. Michael Legg is in his third season as artistic director for the Montana Repertory Theater. Much has changed at the Rep since Michael arrived. Beyond just plays and cars and hotel rooms, Michael has brought a commitment to place-based Montana-inspired programming. Many folks assume the business world owns the term innovation. I hope this conversation corrects that misguided notion, as what's happening at the Montana Rep is as cutting edge as it gets. Michael, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Justin. I appreciate it. So describe the job of an artistic director. What is it that you do? You know, ordinarily in most theaters, an artistic director's job is uh, artistic programming, right? Leading the artistic side of the theater. So working with literary directors uh, and associate artistic directors, all the artistic staff in terms of the actors that are hired. Uh, and, you know, in, a, in, a, in a, an operation as sort of lean as Montana Rep is, uh, I, I do all of those jobs, right? So I'm I'm the artistic director. I'm also the literary manager, the casting director. I direct a lot of the shows that are here, and so that's that's sort of the the, the width and breadth of the job is is to make sure that um, all of the artistic decisions that are happening here are sort of on mission and on track for what we're trying to accomplish. Well, let's we'll get into a lot of those dynamics as we go, but I'd love to start out with you know how did you. You know, you came from from Louisville was your previous stop. How did this job get on your radar? Why was it an attractive opportunity to you? You know, the answer to that question goes way, way, way back uh, to when I was in high school, actually. And I grew up in really rural East Tennessee, up in the mountains, pretty much as far east in Tennessee as you can be and still be in the state. And, you know, my parents both worked in factories. I really didn't have a lot of exposure to the arts. And when I was in high school, thanks to the generosity of, of a donor who to this day, I still don't know who it was, you know, my, my high school, my little rural high school received enough money to, to, to put us all on a bus and take us over to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Uh, the Clarence Brown Theater is their professional theater in residence there to see a play. And, and that moment sort of, you know, I tell people that gave me a vocation, it gave me a calling, it gave me a passion. You know, we saw this play and we got to speak to not only the professional actors, but the students who, uh, who were a part of that, the University of Tennessee, you know, theater majors who were a part of that production. And, you know, at that point, I'm like, this, this is something that I, that I want to do. And that sort of started my track in theater, which completely confused my parents. Um, I was the first person on either side of my family to go to college, much less I get three degrees. They still sometimes <laughs> don't know what to do with me. Um, but you know, that, that was pivotal for me. And so I went into theater. It was always with, um, an eye toward these kinds of institutions. I mean, there really are only a handful, maybe a dozen or more um, um, professional theaters that are embedded on university campuses. 
and and they don't come up. The artistic director positions there don't come up very often. And when this one did, and it was in this location, I mean, it was kind of a, a no brainer. This is the kind of place I want to be. So what is it about that model that's unique and special having a professional theater operation embedded in a university? What makes that unique? Well, you know, it's mostly because we hire professionals. So we're the only full season theater in the state that works with the major unions. So Equity, which is the union that represents uh, um, actors and stage managers, there are uh, unions for designers, unions for directors. And so we've committed and have entered into contracts with those organizations to hire professionals here. And since we're on a university, they allow us to have what they call a ratio. It's a mix of professional actors to student actors. And what's great about that is that I get to hire uh, folks here at the university, folks in the community, to work hand in hand with these professional actors. It's kind of like um, an apprenticeship in, in the in the oldest meaning of the word. You get to come here, you're doing the work, but you're doing it alongside uh, folks who've been doing it for a very long time. So you learn a lot, and then you form connections that help you when you leave this place. Because if you move to the city where they're, uh, uh, you know, where they live. They very often help these students sort of uh, enter into the market there, find jobs, make connections. So better outcomes for students, probably, you know, higher production quality and the opportunity to employ professional actors and sort of sustain that profession as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's been a part of the rep's ethos for almost as long as it's been around. You know, we're the rep itself has been around for uh, 50. I think this is the 54th or 55th season. Uh, uh, and, you know, I, I, I was sent the other day uh, the thesis that was written by a graduate student here at the university back in, I guess, the 80s that really dove deep into the history of the rep. It's fascinating reading. And, and it, was, it was created with this idea in mind, and, uh, you know, an, an opportunity to provide, you know, uh, sort of I would call them transitional experiences, right, for, for students who are who are steeped in the education here, who are learning their craft, but are ready to start stretching out into what their professional careers uh, might be. And that that was part of this. It was a big part of the rep that I really wanted to honor and continue. Yeah. Talking about that, that heritage and some of that DNA of the organization. I mean, the organization's mission, it's very connected to people, the people of Missoula, the state of Montana, um, talk about, uh, you know, the mission as, as you interpret it and as you try to lead the organization, how do you make choices based on that mission? Yeah. You know, we, we, we faced a pretty hard decision really early on in my tenure and, and that was, you know, the, the rep used to do a, a national tour. They used to, to mount a, a pretty large scale production that was a, a play by, uh, uh, you know, writers in the classic American canon. And they would take that to, you know, all over the country, you know, uh, the, but the number of locations that they could take it to, you know, ever since 2008, when the recession really hit, it affected a lot of arts organizations and especially presenting houses. And so slowly over the years, you know, fewer and fewer people were booking the tour. It became financially really difficult to sustain it. And I think early in my in my first year here, the the booking agent uh, that that the university had been using sort of called us up and said, "I just can't I can't do this anymore. There just aren't enough people uh, who want a, a, a tour of a non musical play." To, 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 for me to, to really make money on right. booking it. And so, you know, we're that, we, we, it was an opportunity for us to think, well, what's been important so far, right? And what's been important, really, a, a major part of, of what the rep had been doing was touring things 
inside the state first, right? There were several places inside the state that the tour would go before it would launch out. And we said to ourselves, what if we start doing that with pretty much everything that we do? What if we start considering ourselves? You know, you mentioned I worked in Louisville at Actors Theater of Louisville. Actors Theater was the state theater of Kentucky. And so part of its mission was also to produce work that benefited the entire state. And, you know, we talked and we're like, what that that sounds like something we should do. We should try to make uh, uh, the majority of what we produce here accessible to as many people in the state as possible. And then we thought, you know, what are the stories that we're not telling? Some of these classic American stories were very centered on, you know, white male stories and were very centered on a certain period of uh, of time in which they'd been written. And, 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 you know, we realized that there are a lot of stories that are specific to Montana, not only uh, uh, literal stories about individual people or things that have happened here, but also stories of communities here, thinking especially of the indigenous communities that really hadn't had the space on our stages that that I think they they need and they deserve. You know, representation is important. We talked about that a lot too. I, I tell people all the time that if I had seen um, a healthy representation of an out gay man at any point in time in my youth, <laughs> whether on stage or on TV or film, then my entire life would be different. And so I think we have a responsibility to make sure that every single person who lives here, who comes to see something that we produce, has the opportunity to see themselves on stage, to have has the opportunity to see their stories on stage. And so that sort of that was the genesis of this, this new focus and this new mission. So you mentioned a lot of important themes in there, Michael. Representation was one that kind of comes to mind. And you think of theater and the arts as an area where you know, you can express new ideas, you can expose people to new ideas, to draw them in through storytelling and imagery. How, talk about that experience, because you're, you're, you're bringing theater around uh, what's fair to call a pretty conservative state in many conservative communities. How, how is the sort of storytelling and the interface with these communities uh, been in your experience? Yeah, it's been fantastic because, you know, storytelling predates all of us, right? That's that's maybe a silly way to put it, but, you know, the basis of our history, right? We, I mean, we used to sit around, right around fires and tell stories. That's what we had to entertain ourselves. And, and I think that at, at its heart is what theater does best is it recreates that communal experience where we can all come into a darkened space or we can all come, you know, sit in the back seat of a car or wherever it is and and have a moment where we are all experiencing the same narrative and the same story and in that way it's just radically different right than like tv or film in which those 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 experiences of having stories come at us can be very individualized and isolated um and i think that's part of the magic of theater and and that's been I think it's universal. And so whether we're in Missoula or whether we're, you know, in the eastern part of the state or or I found that if the storytelling is good and the story is clear, then then people receive it for what it is. You know, I'm I'm mindful of again, our mission is about telling stories that are applicable and relevant to the people who live here. And so I'm always mindful about the politics and the culture as 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 much as I, I can be, but also, you know, when you realize that 
I think that we are incredible artistic risk takers, even though we don't always realize it about ourselves, right? So if you think about your Netflix queue, for example, and the hundred things in it probably that are there because they seemed interested, but you've never heard of them before, <laughs> right? Or uh, if you are on Spotify and how fun it can be sometimes to encounter uh, a new band or a new musician that 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 you enjoy, and I think that we have that same capacity for theater, right? It's like I, I hear from a contingent of folks who are like, "But I miss those classic stories," and I, you know, then want me to do Oklahoma or or something, and and I hear that, and what I'm what I what I try to say back to them is like, actually, I I want to take that. And, and offer you uh, a, a new story that will become the classic, right? I'm really curious about who are the playwrights who are working now that will become the, the Neil Simons and the Arthur Millers and the Tennessee Williams of, of a new century who are telling the stories now that will become the classics that we all want to go back and, and revisit with that level of nostalgia later. And that's, that's sort of what I'm looking for. And I think there's an audience for that. You know, I, I think that um, there are lots of theater companies inside the state, uh, even like thinking about uh, places like MCT here in Missoula or Fort Peck who are already doing those classic stories and doing them well. And so I want to venture a little to the left of that, not radically left, right? We're not, <laughs> tell people all the time, we're not, we're not doing plays where people are getting naked and screaming. I'm not into performance art, but I'm, I, I'm about telling good stories that you may not already know. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. You know, the, the, the commitment under your tenure to producing new works versus those classics that you know many folks are familiar with. I mean, talk about th th that decision. That was that that was new to the organization when you arrived, and um, you know what were some of the sort of um, you know struggles and wins of trying to trying to make that happen. Sure. Yeah. It, you know, I, I was pretty clear and transparent when I came here for the interview, which was like this three day ordeal. <laughs> <laughs> I think I talked to everybody who works at the university and several hundred people who live in, in, in Missoula, um, uh, about what I was, what I wanted to try to accomplish here. You know, I think it's, it's in, in one aspect, it's also good for the students because the majority of jobs that are available to students when they exit, a training program like this is in new work, in new work development, in theaters that are doing more contemporary plays. Um, you know, there are fewer and fewer professional theaters around the country that are doing Shakespeare these days, that are doing some of the some of the classics. Uh, and so, so training them and outfitting them to be able to handle uh, contemporary plays, I think, is really important to their uh, hireability in the future. Um, but I think, you know, the, the struggles about it and the challenges were very much what I, I, I was just talking about. You know, it's this idea that, you know, theater as comfort, right? Theater as we go back to theater uh, and the shows that we liked and the shows that we knew and that we grew up on. Uh, um, um, I think in some of the same ways that we go back to some of the old classic movies. And I, and I think that there's such a place for that in our community and in culture. Um, um, but again, I'm more interested right now in, in um, what current voices want to talk about and what contemporary playwrights are interested in exploring. Um, and I'm also trying to figure out how to make theater uh, just as much of an experience, right? Like an interactive experience as it is an opportunity to sort of sit in the dark with a bunch of folks and, and listen. 
A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hi, this is Steve Albini, and you're listening to A New Angle. Yeah, talk about that, you know, that, that innovation at the experience level. You know, in the introduction, I referenced the production in the cars and in the hotel rooms. Like, how did decisions like that come to life? Is that all through the vision of the playwright? Is that some um, collaboration with you as the artistic director? Like, when I, when I, you know, when I started hearing stories about these, these plays and cars around town, like, how does that even work? How does it happen? And, and how would you kind of think of expanding the notion of what's possible it just seems so innovative yeah it's you know it's it's also fun yeah it's just a lot of fun both to to curate and to bring together but also i think to experience right because so so the answer to your first question is those come about in a sort of a collaborative atmosphere between me as the artistic director and usually the director of these pieces and the playwrights that we reach out to and, and so it starts with just a general conversation. Like I reach out to a playwright that I'm really excited about and really interested in, maybe one that I've worked with in the past. And I just say to them, hey, do you want to write a short play that takes place in a car? And the actors are in the front seat and the audience is in the back seat and they're that close to you. And inevitably they're all like, yes, oh my gosh, yes, I would love to write something like that because it's a very particular kind of challenge to them. And I generally don't give them any more instruction than that. I might say to them, you know, uh, um, I want to stick to only two, no more than two actors. Or, you know, if you have a particular location in mind that the car might sit outside, like is it sitting outside a restaurant or a museum or a bar or a church or out in the middle of a field, you know, like those are things that we can, um, that we can discuss. And I'll see if there's someplace here that we can make that happen, but you get to figure out what that world is. And I'm just always delighted and surprised with what comes back. And I'm always delighted and surprised with how different the stories, you know, because there's always a secret fear in the back of my brain that I'm going to say to five amazing playwrights, write a play that takes place in a car and they're all five going to write the same play. <laughs> um, but they've just been magically, radically different. You know, I think about one of the plays in the cars was written by a playwright named Claire Keechel, who was also one of the writers on the Watchmen series on HBO. And she wrote this incredible sci-fi play. And I'm such a geek for sci-fi plays about these two people that got stuck in a sort of a time warp and they were always going to be in the car for these 10 minutes over and over and over and over. And then it slowly dawns on the audience that they're a part of this as well. Right. So there's also a level of interactivity that the playwright can play with in terms of, do we interact with the audience? Do we just pretend that they're not there? And, and as an audience member, and I hate participatory theater. I really do. I have to say that I hate when anybody asks me to come up on stage (laughs) or do anything, but there is something about intimacy in the theater that I find fascinating, like how the dynamic changes when you are, you know, when you're sitting in a darkened theater where the actor can't see you and you're 50 feet from the stage. And when you're sitting in the backseat of a car and the actor turns around and looks you in the eye and you're two feet from them, that that level of intimacy is also challenging for the actor to work in that kind of small space. But I think it's been fascinating to see how an audience reacts to that. Yeah, what have been some of the the, the most noteworthy reactions that you've witnessed or or heard you know, of? It's, yeah, it's you know, it's it's about that. 
theater etiquette that is so deeply ingrained yeah. in us, right? So so inevitably we'd get to the end of the play and people would want to clap or, <laughs> or we'd want to stop and have a conversation with the actors and tell them how good it was and what a good time they had. You know, and I'm trying to curate an experience where it feels like you're eavesdropping, right? You come in, you sit in the back of the car, you see the play, somebody opens the door and you leave. And it was really fun to watch how many people wanted to then interact with the actors in a way that they had been used to interact sure. with. It was fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. They kind of go back to what they know, I would guess. Yeah. 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 Which is lovely. Yeah. So, I mean, we're catching at a time where we can maybe have line of sight to uh, some degree of normal when it comes to interacting with people in close quarters and gathering and so forth. Um, but how has, you know, what's been your experience trying to lead the organization through the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, it's I don't have to I don't think I have to tell folks that it's been rough, yeah, right? When yeah. you when you're an organization, you know, no arts organization in the country uh uh makes it by ticket sales alone, but ticket sales is a pretty huge part of our sort of financial makeup and to lose all of our revenue for, you know, a year and a half basically. Uh, has been really challenging, but you know it was also an, an, a fantastic opportunity to force us to to kind of ask, well, then what can theater be? And and you know I, I of course was already primed to letting it be something that wasn't about gathering in a room together. And so there were three different projects that we you know we've done um, to sort of experiment. And I wanted them all to be off Zoom. I, I you know, I, I thank I'm you. Just speaking, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm just so Zoom fatigued right now. And the thought of watching a play on Zoom, even though I know a lot of theaters and even here at the university, they're doing it and they're doing it well. And so I don't want to knock it because I think that's one way to continue to reach out to your audiences. But for me, it, it sort of feels like you're trying to make a play into it into a film or into a TV show. And we just don't have that expertise. We don't have that equipment. We don't have a way to make that look as slick as I think a Netflix generation was expecting that kind of thing to look like. And so we said to ourselves, what are some other delivery methods and some ways that we can still have theater uh, uh, without, without falling back on that Zoom model? And the first thing we did back in September is you know, again, this is the great thing about commissioning plays, because, you know, I, if I had tried to find a play that fit these circumstances, it would have been like putting, you know, trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. But I was able to call a playwright friend and say, hi, so I want you to write a play in which every single person in the cast always stays at least 12 feet from each other. And, ha and that has nothing to do with what the play is about, right. <laughs> right? And I could just ask for that. And and so the playwright, Jean Ann Douglas, she wrote this amazing piece that we did out at the Fire Tower um, at the history, uh, the, the uh, museum out at Fort Missoula. And I was able to say to her, and it also takes place in a fire tower. And that just sort of lit her creativity. And she wrote this amazing piece about the formation of the National Forest Service and the the true story, the legit true story of Gifford Pinchot, who was their first director, who had secretly married the ghost of his dead girlfriend. And that, you know, led to this amazing opportunity for those two characters never to be able to interact. And it became a play that was not only historically significant to Montana and to Missoula, and it took place during the Great Burn. That was a huge part of the the play, 
<laughs> well, also ironically during fire season. And so the, the sky was filled with smoke when we, when we did this play, but it also became a play about uh, longing about how do you relate to people? How do you escape your circumstances? And it was really, really beautiful. So we did that. We just closed a series of, of plays that you, very short plays that you access by calling in a, a telephone number and listening to the plays on your phone. And those were designed to be really short snippets, like five minutes that, that were made to feel like one person was talking directly to you. So you got to sample these, again, really beautiful stories that were a combination of some professional playwrights, but also some local playwrights, local actors. And, and also, you know, one of the great things the pandemic allowed is it allowed us to use some professional actors who aren't located here in Missoula because they could just record. So we did that. I don't think that we'll carry that out of the pandemic with us. We might try that again. But the thing that we've created uh, that I think has the most potential that we're definitely going to um, carry out of the pandemic is that we're, we're working with the School of Media Arts here uh, with a couple of students and they're developing an app for us that is a, sort of a geolocation sensitive delivery system. So if you sort of think uh, uh, geocaching uh, meets Pokemon Go meets plays. It's a system where you're going to be able to carry our app around on your phone and move to different locations around the city or around the state. Uh, and when you get there, the media, whether it's audio or video or animation, will unlock on your phone and you get to watch it in the place for which it was written. And we're really excited about a lot of the possibilities of that and the applications of it. Yeah, I mean, that has to, all these things you're talking about, like it just expands the notion of the, one, the boundaries of entertainment, but also the boundaries of, you know, the, the, the physical footprint of the organization. Yeah, right. You know, if our mission is to really serve as many people in Montana as, as possible, then I can commission a playwright to write a play that takes place in a gas station and I can drop that play so that it's accessible in every town pump across right. the state. And so no matter where you are in Montana, if you, you can walk into this location and pull up your phone and see something, a piece of entertainment, an experience that we have created, uh, no matter where you are. And so let's talk about, you know, this summer. So what uh, what can sort of listeners get excited about uh, coming from the rep over the course of the summer and fall? What are you cooking up? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of the summer for us, we're traditionally dark in the summer. You know, I one of the things I love about this place is that it's really hard to get people to come inside, including myself, right. when it's summer. <laughs> so summer for us is a lot of, of planning. Uh, figuring out how we're going to take this app and expand it and continue to make it an offering in our season. And then looking at how we go back to normal come fall. I mean, the, it's, it's ironic that the, the show we had to cancel when, um, when, when, our, when we shut down for COVID uh, was a series of five plays that took place at Willard School and also in the bus ride there and back. So we were all going to meet at Western Cider, hop on a bus, see a play that happened on the bus, see more plays inside the school, ride the bus back. And we had to cancel it. But we're pretty confident that come you know September, we're going to be able to bring that show back. It feels really good that, that, that we're going back to school come fall. Um, and then, yeah, it's a lot of dreaming. You know, I, I imagine one of the things I've always wanted to do is a series of plays that you encounter while you're floating down the river. <laughs> and so that feels to me like I should be doing a lot of homework 
this summer in terms of floating down the river and seeing what that experience is like. Yeah, well, that sounds like uh, the way to uh, craft a good afternoon workday, it would seem. Right, it's research. Yeah. It's all research. So we did a podcast, gosh, it feels like a lifetime ago, but back in May with a couple local musicians. And, um, you know, I asked them, like, you know, how, what do you think of creativity during this time? And this was kind of the time when we were in more salient form of lockdown yeah. um, than we are now. You know, and, and one of the guys said, like, I think this is a great time for artists and a terrible time for artists. And you you, you referenced some of the, the challenges. Um, it's a really hard time for artists to make money. Um, yeah. Yet, it's a time when there's just so much, I don't want to use the word necessarily inspiration, but stimulation of so many different types and new forms. I mean, what do you thinking will come out of this pandemic in terms of creative and art and um you know do, do, are you seeing any signs of, of new forms of art or exciting forms of expression that you hadn't seen before yeah you know it's it's such a hard question right because you're right it's been it's been catastrophic and i've seen a lot of figures thrown around but you know something like 40 percent of jobs in nonprofits are lost now arts nonprofits and 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 the the unemployment rate among artists and i don't know if this if the statistics was specifically about people in theater or artists in general was something like 60 65 percent and so you know i think it's it, it, it yeah it's I think that for some folks that it has led to a sort of a revival of creativity and for some folks it's been about survival, you know, and, and I want to give a lot of grace to those folks because I think it can be really hard to be creative when you're trying to figure out how to pay your rent and, and where your next meal is coming from. Um, um, but, but having said that, I do think that a lot of folks are using this as an opportunity to experiment with art and, and specifically to experiment with the ways in which they partner with institutions to make art. I think one of the big revelations, and, and you know, I'm, I'm happy to see this happen, is that I think a lot of art is going to become less reliant on institutions to fuel it, right? Fewer people are going to be looking for people like me to give them space or an opportunity. They're just going to take that space and that opportunity and make it for itself. And that, to me, is super, super exciting, you know, for us, it's been about how do we continue to survive, but also invest, you know, I mean, we, we lost a lot of revenue and a lot of income, but we were very fortunate. And actually, we didn't qualify for really any of the the public assistance and, and any of that, because we, you know, technically, we're an affiliate of the university, we don't have our own standalone nonprofit status. And so, you know, there's a lot of that relief money that never came our way. But, you know, I, I, I wanted to make a commitment to artists wherever I could. And, and I couldn't hire actors and I couldn't hire directors, but what I could do is I could hire playwrights and I could reach out to folks and say, I, you know, go ahead and write me something and I'm going to pay you for it now. And I'm going to put it in my back pocket. And then when it comes time, we're going to, we're going to produce it and we're going to commit to producing it. I, I can tell you now it's going to happen. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I promise you, we're going to produce your work and, and doing whatever we could, right, to throw a little bit, whatever lifelines that we could to any and all artists um, that we could help. And that's sort of also what was the impetus behind doing some of these um, 
you know, alternative delivery systems is that, you know, we could get into a sound studio and record and we could go ahead and pay those actors and we could pay those sound designers. You know, one of the things about being a professional theater is that we commit to paying all of our artists. And so we could pay those playwrights uh, uh, so that we could not only contribute to the art that's happening in the world, but we could do at least a little something to help these people survive what's happening right now. So one of the big themes, Michael, it seems to me of this conversation has been accessibility in a broad sense, like creating new forms, distributing your work in different ways to make it more available and more interesting and more engaging to more people. Can you talk about that maybe more ex- explicitly, like from the perspective yeah. of somebody, you know, I, I haven't been a regular theater goer. My wife is passionate and goes all the time. And there's, there's a lot of folks out there that, that maybe just think it's not for me or it's just not my sure. thing or yeah. how do we draw more people in? You know, that, that was also one of the, one of the foundations of doing some of this site-based work out in the community, right? It's why we parked the cars downtown. It's why we chose a hotel that was out in Missoula. And, you know, we, we, I, I'm a big believer of, I can't ask you to come to my house until I've come to yours, right? Like I need to, I need to, as a show of good faith, uh, um, as, as just somebody to say, Hey, theater is not always exactly what you think it is because for every person who's dying for me to produce Oklahoma, there's a whole raft of folks, especially younger audiences here in Missoula who are like, why do I want to go like make an appointment to sit in a theater for two hours to see the show? That's not about me right now or about my life right now. And so I think in terms of accessibility and in terms of, um, of, of outreach and, and really sort of, uh, helping and hoping that those people will come back to traditional theater has been, I'm going to come out to where you are. And I'm going to make this experience, I, I call them experiences sometimes and not plays. I'm going to make this experience something that is fun. You can grab a drink first. You get to walk around. You get to see this thing you've never seen before. You get to come back and have another drink. And then you get to go out and walk some more. Um, and you get to see what theater can be. And you get to trust that what we are doing is we're telling good stories, right? We're telling, and everybody, everybody loves a good story. And when you trust that, that we're a, a good home for stories and that we're doing interesting, fun things, then I'm going to ask you to come back out here to campus and sit inside a theater and watch us do this in a way that you will be familiar with the tradition, but you'll be experiencing a brand new way of looking at it and a brand new story. And, and I think that's, that's sort of what's behind all of that. Awesome. Well, Michael, how can people learn more about the rep and the fantastic work you and your colleagues are doing? Absolutely. It's real simple. Just go to montanarep.com. Perfect. Well, thanks so much. Best of luck as we transition out of this pandemic. And yeah, I look forward to seeing what all, what you're all are cooking up. Thanks, Justin. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, generous gift of UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business, with additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors and Drum Coffee. AJ Williams is our producer. VTO Jeff Amet and John Wicks made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. If you liked what you heard, 
tell your friends about it. Thanks a lot. See you next time.